Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting episode. We're going to have, you know, two co-founders here, you know, jumping in, sharing their story, sharing the journey of this rocket ship that they're in. And I think that you're all going to enjoy very much, you know, what they have to say, because, you know, again, it's all about the building, scaling, all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, and that is Ty Harris and also Matt Wilbot. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane with both of you guys. You know, so let's start with Ty. So Ty, you were born, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia. So how was life growing up? Yeah, no, look, I, I was really fortunate. Um, I wish I had a more interesting childhood, but uh, I had two loving parents who, you know, my dad was an Air Force pilot and then, a, and then worked for an airline. So I got to travel a fair bit and they really prioritized education for me and, and, and gendered a curiosity and, and, and just really sacrificed a lot for my, for my education. So it was, it was great. Now, I think that when you have uh, parents like that, you know, that, that, that give you that insight into the world, you know, I'm sure that that gives you, you know, a different worldview, you know, on everything. And also the way that you do your analysis and you think about stuff. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a real uh, curiosity. One of the things that I, I think is, is, is a pro and a con about me is I'm very, you know, I got to derive everything for myself. And so I'm not going to believe something unless I write it down. And okay, yeah, that's true. And I think uh, there's a certain aspect of that. You can certainly see that in my parents. They, 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 they brought that level of kind of first principles, which I, and drives my wife crazy, I'm sure sometimes, um, but uh, where it works in business sometimes. So let's talk about numbers. You know, out of all things economics, you know, you've done the undergrad, the graduate, you know, degree, you know, whether it's in Duke or also, you know, at MIT. Why economics? You know, I, I find economics great. It's a, it's a really neat, I'm a pretty quanty person. And, but I also used to be, I was like on the debate team in high school. So I was very into kind of, you know, social and political issues and making arguments. And for me, economics at the time was a really neat mishmash between the two. You could use a lot of math to prove things. And you could use data and write code, but at the same time, you're arguing about kind of big weighty issues. Uh, you know, so that was, that was the early days of it. I, I do a little less formal economics these days, but um, it was, it's a great uh, start also for, for any kind of quantitative career. I, I think it's just a great back, background. So. And, you know, one, one, one of the things that I typically see on entrepreneurs is that competitive nature in them. And I think that that competitive nature came out of you when it came to ballroom dancing. You know, that's quite <laughs> unique. I was I was scared you were gonna bring that up. You must have found some old photos, but yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like I said, I was at I was at MIT a little bit, kind of wandering in grad school. Supposed to be writing my dissertation, and one of the things I wandered into was, you know, MIT doesn't have like a great basketball team, but the, my God, they are the best ballroom dance team in the country. And I found my way there, and I was very serious for about ten years. I was very serious. I practiced 10, 15 hours a week at uh, ballroom dancing. It's actually how I met my my wife, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's a weird niche hobby that I really enjoyed. And thanks to meeting your wife, you got into the whole insurance world. So how did that happen? Yeah, she, she was, so she was my ballroom dance partner at the time, um, has since now become my wife. But she grew up in a family of actuaries, which is this very 
strange thing most people have never heard of. I was thinking like mortuary when she told me. I, I didn't, but I, I, I discovered this and she said, yeah, you can take these tests and they just make money because you take these standardized tests and become an actuary. It's pretty good money. And I, you know, that's one of my, I love standardized tests. And so I, I, I that's, that was very appealing to me at the time. And, and I kind of went off and secretly started doing these without even telling her, I went off and started secretly taking these actuarial exams, got through a few of them. And then that got me into insurance. That kind of pulled me into, uh, I, I went to work at Liberty Mutual up in Boston. Um, and that, that dragged me into the insurance world. But that, 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 that's something interesting there because you were working at Liberty for 13 years. You know, one of the things that uh, you see in the U.S., I mean, obviously, I'm originally from Spain. So there, you know, you'll see people stay, sticking at a job for quite, you know, some time. So what do you think kept you for so long? What was that future that you were living into that uh, made you, you know, want to stay around? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a great company. I, I, um, I had some great early bosses and, and mentors. Uh, it, it's just a really friendly, engaging environment. And there's a lot to learn. Boy, insurance is complicated. And there's so many problems to solve. And, you know, for a big giant company, I think they probably have, I don't know, 40, 50,000 employees, I was able to keep getting, you know, promoted and recognized for, for, for work. Um, I eventually became the, you know, went from being a, a starting analyst to the ultimately the chief product and underwriting officer there, which was a pretty senior role. So I just kept kept being engaged by it. Um, it was it was it was a great job. And uh, you know, in your case, you know, Matt, you know, obviously, you know, a super interesting story. Obviously, shout out to the wives because that's how you know you guys come into the picture together. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But to allow you know the audience to really get to know Matt a little bit, I mean, one thing that is really remarkable is you know how you are originally from Poland, Matt, and 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 the also the uncertainty that the family had to endure, you know, during the early days. I'm wondering. You know, if you could walk us, you know, through what was, you know, childhood like for you and and how do you think that uncertainty, you know, growing up, you know, that perhaps the family experience, how that has shaped who you are today? Yeah, of course. And and I think you're right. Um, I probably have a bit of a, a different take on on risk than many other people just because of that uncertainty in my childhood. So I, I was born in Poland. I don't remember much of the early days. But um, from what I'm told, we we fled Poland when I was very young, when I was five years old. Um, we were political refugees. We left a pretty oppressive government. Um, and we we fled to Germany. We lived there for two years, and um, we sought asylum in the United States, where we finally were granted asylum. That's kind of where I grew up. So I know as well that uh, getting a computer in your bedroom, you know, was uh, quite a breakthrough. You know, thanks to your dad. So, uh, so tell us what kind of computer and what were you doing there, and why did your father think it was so important to have that computer in your room? Yeah, I think I think I can credit a lot of my ability to to, to program and kind of the career that I have with my dad's forward thinking and and knowing that computers were going to be the future at such an early age. Um, so he spent probably our most of our family's life savings at that point on this beautiful Mac Performa. And he, instead of putting it in the living room, like most people, I guess, he, he put it in my bedroom. And he's, he just wanted me to see this thing. And uh, to, to me, this was this very intimidating, expensive box. But then, you know, my dad loved languages. He was a, actually a language teacher. And he, he spent time with me learning how to program. And he didn't have a background in programming either. He, uh, he and I were both learning together. I think that was actually quite an amazing bonding experience for us to both learn how to use this tool. Um, and then 
from there, I kind of just fell in love with it. And uh, the, the rest of my life, my career has been engineering and being obsessed with programming. Now, you know, after after school, you know, basically one thing that uh, that happened for you is that you went to the investment banking world, you know, with Goldman Sachs, where you were scaling through the ranks. Then, you know, at one point you decide that's not for you and you went at it as an entrepreneur. And one thing that is very interesting here from your journey as a, as a founder is that you've been able to experience everything. You know, you've been able to experience, you know, when things work out, you've been able to experience when things don't work so well. Uh, but as they say, you know, you either succeed or you learn. So obviously the most immediate, you know, journey, you know, or, or event that happened in your entrepreneurial journey was a success, right? Elements Insurance. Uh, but before that, you went at it, you know, for a few times. And unfortunately, things didn't work out the way that you had hoped for. So it sounds like the third time was a charm for you. And uh, I'm wondering what kept you going? Because obviously, you know, the first try, you know, it didn't, you know, uh, get the outcome that you had hoped for. Same thing on the second one. What led you to keep going until you actually stumbled, you know, with Elements Insurance, you know, and, and, and thank God that was a success? Yeah, no, that, that's such a, a great point. You know, I, I think I have maybe the typicals or the stereotypical, I should say, immigrant story where, you know, education was really important to my parents. Grades were really important to my parents. And, and you know, if school wasn't tough enough, if I was getting too many A's, I would get a tutor, right, to, to make it even more difficult. Um, they, they knew that education was the future. And, and so throughout kind of my entire upbringing, I was always put into situations where there was a lot of, of challenges. There was always a next rung higher. And so when, when, I, when I was at Goldman Sachs and I was succeeding, I think I still yearn for those like, additional challenges. Like what else is out there that I can push myself into a place where I'm a little uncomfortable and, and trying new things and maybe failing a little bit and, and that's okay. And so when I left Goldman and I, I founded a startup called Peakful, I founded a startup called Recitate, neither of those worked out, but I think it was probably a lot of that upbringing that you should push yourself beyond your comfort zone and it's okay to fail. That led me to just like, no, that this is okay. I can continue and I will continue and eventually it will work out. And with Elements Insurance, actually, it ended up uh, working out. Uh, you built it into a multi-million dollar uh, agency, you know, which eventually you sold it to Titan. You know, one thing that is really cool here is that when you go through the, and, and here obviously, you know, like you, you didn't raise any money, but, but when you go through the, uh, I say the full cycle with a business, you know, of building, scaling, and exiting, it gives you full visibility into how, you know, really the game works. What kind of visibility do you think that gave you? Yeah, I think, you know, you read in, in TechCrunch and all these other publications, you, you just read the highlight reel of the success stories and, and just the tail end of these big exits. But seeing the business through when it's just you and your co-founder, when you're hiring your first employees and you're convincing them that this pie-in-the-sky dream is going to work out through to you know, just sitting there building it for years to the exit. And then those negotiations, when you're talking to your buyer and, and they're you know, picking apart every little bit of your business, you don't experience that when you're reading those, those articles. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really an amazing experience. 
And it sounds like 2017 was the year when magic was going to happen. And that magic came because, you know, your wives, you know, went to MIT together. You know, they knew each other. As a result, you know, you guys became friends too. But I want to know, Ty, you know, what was that day where you and Matt, you know, were having a chat and, and the idea of perhaps doing something of your own, you know, came up? How did that come about? We knew each other for, I don't know, maybe 12, 10 or 12 years, even before we started and the company together. And we had always, you know, kicked things around. I, I, I think I didn't have a lot of role models in my life. They were entrepreneurs. So, that, you know, this, I, I saw lots of lawyers and doctors and finance people, but that was kind of success that I, that I had access to. And it always seemed magic to me that people could just start companies. Um, but I think my outlet was I would uh, I had a bunch of hobbies, these really deep hobbies, some of which were somewhat lucrative and whatnot. But Matt and I, we both, you know, I'm an amateur programmer. He's a professional programmer. And we would always talk about interesting technology things. And, you know, we talk about companies. And I, I think um, from my perspective, I, you know, I was at a giant insurance company and I just saw so many opportunities. There's like 10 different companies. I think there was a, a theme around, you know, what they were going after, but there were a bunch of different companies one could start um, to, to go after opportunities there. Uh, but yeah, we, I think it was, we probably had the hardest thing for me was, well, I, I, I also was having two kids uh, at about that time in my life. And so I, I knew I wanted to do it, but I was a little bit of the straggler because jumping out of a, a very cushy corporate job into, you know, my first startup, it wasn't Matt's first, my first startup, that was, that was a big, big leap that I think probably I was a little slower to than Matt was. So I guess, say, hey, Matt, what was that moment where, you know, you guys really get aligned and it's like, screw it, let's do it. Let's go for this one. I think the stars really aligned in a number of different ways. You know, Ty and I are the right pair of, of, of technical ability. And, you know, we, we obviously friend, are friends, so we kind of are, are comfortable being around each other. But our, our backgrounds, right, this, this 20 or 30 years of, of work that we had done, really lined us up for success. Ty had spent his life, you know, in his insurance career and, and seeing the world of insurance through the eyes of an insurance company and the problems that they were facing. And I had spent my life as a programmer, as an engineer, and have recently got into insurance, but I was looking at it through the prism of an agent as a broker who was selling the insurance on behalf of these insurance companies. And we both saw the same problems from different perspectives. And so I think the, the genesis moment is like when we're sitting at the dinner table and then I'm ranting and raving about these problems and asking, why aren't the insurance companies making it easier for us? And Ty is ranting about problems and asking, why are brokers making it easier for us? And so I think to come together and, and create an insurance company that solves both of those problems was so perfect for us. So Ty, for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Openly? How do you guys make money today? Yeah, so we are a heavily tech-enabled provider of what I'll call premium homeowners insurance. Um, you know, so you know most people know what homeowners insurance is, but you know why? Why are we different? Why is it better? We we use technology to make it extremely fast and easy. So, for example, you could get your home insured by answering just your name and date and birth and address to an agent. They they could have you a quote in like eight seconds, as opposed to with many carriers, it might take you know days or, or weeks to to get that. We also use technology to you know, drive automation and low expense. The industry as a whole, about people don't know this, but about 40% of all the money people pay to home insurance goes toward 
like administrative expense, not profit, not claims, but admin expense. So we dig at that as well. We also have very sophisticated underwriting. But you know, Matt was alluding to a, a final aspect of our company, which is we we had this great all these algorithms and you know low cost model of, of premium insurance. But who really is going to care about that? It's really tough to get in consumers to care about that because they don't shop that often for home insurance. It's not like top of mind thing you want to think about. But I think some of the magic we found is we said, you know who does care about that? These independent agents who do this all day, every day and sell like half the homeowner's insurance in the US. And we brought them this very technology forward product and, and they had that in their hands from us. And then like a you know 100 year old system available from, from one of our competitors, it's much slower and clunkier and awful to work with. And it's really that advantage that has made openly go viral. Um, you know, so that's that's sort of the the secret sauce that we built. And credit to Matt and his team for for building that technology that enabled that, of course. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. That building, you know, hasn't been easy. Hey, Matt, you know, how was that time where you guys launched, you know, this thing and they, there was like nothing happening for weeks? Yeah, no, that was, that was scary days. Luckily, it was only a few weeks, but we, rather than buying an off-the-shelf, you know, policy management system and rating engine, all the other things that the incumbents are, are buying, we built everything ourselves. So we spent two years building our own software stack for the entire stack of running an insurance company on this bet that it's all going to work out. And so, you know, then the, the day comes that we go live and, you know, we had lots of promises from agents that they were going to sell whole policies and we're waiting and waiting and a week ticks by, another week ticks by. I mean, you know, we're facing this existential crisis. Did we just waste two years of our lives? Um, but then sure enough, the, the dam broke and a couple sales started to trickle in and, um, you know, it just took agents a little bit of time. It, it took them time to get to know us, to trust us. You know, it's a big deal for, for there to be a new insurance company. You don't hear about new insurance companies launching every year, but, but eventually we built enough trust with agents that, like Ty said earlier, it became viral. And I know as well to follow up on that, you know, Ty, that uh, you guys went through Techstars through the Accelerator program. 
Um, you know, you thought that, uh, you know, things were going to be, you know, blue skies, you know, right after that. But all of a sudden you realize that, uh, hey, maybe, you know, it's not uh, such a blue skies. Maybe it's a little cloudy because you literally had to go to square one, given, you know, a series of events that unfolded. What happened there? Because I know that some, some of those days were some of the darkest that you guys encountered. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we went through Tech Stars in Boston very early, and it was a great program. We were there with nine other companies, you know, in the kind of basement of this building, but you're really building camaraderie. We were next to a, a pipe that we're pretty sure was like the sewage. That's okay. Um, but the, you know, bless their hearts, but our, our, all our, the nine other companies there were like in industries that it's, it's easier to, to get to your MVP, right? So they were selling something which required kind of a, a small build and then you had to find traction. And so we'd have these weekly KPI meetings and we'd go in and everybody else would say, yeah, we got like three sales this week. We got five sales. Okay, it's going up. Here's the metrics. And every single time, but Matt and I, what we had to build, it's like starting an airline. You have to have like reinsurance and this, you know, you have to build an amazing amount of stuff, a claims organization, all this crap to actually run an insurance company, even for your first policy. So we had nothing. And so we would show up at every single KPI meeting. So our KPI is, we still don't have this, this critical thing we needed. A carrier partner was like the number one thing we needed. And we just invariably show up, you know, we still don't have it. Uh, KPI is still zero. Um, as it remained for about two years, but then, so we came out and it took us about two years to get to market finally. And that was, that was why it was so troubling when we sold no policies having launched two years later, but, but eventually it all worked out. So, so uh, at what point, Matt, to, to follow up on that, do you guys realize that uh, you're turning, you know, a corner here? I think when we started, so we, we had this thing where we would celebrate every sale right at the beginning. It was a big deal. We would highlight the first five sales, the first 10 sales. People would have a big gong celebration. We would look at every house and examine it. We would make sure the algorithms were all correct. I think, I think the turning point was probably when we stopped doing that for every single house and every property where we, we stopped pinching ourselves and we believed, okay, this is now happening Let's figure out how we're going to actually get the system to scale to a thousand policies a day instead of just five policies a day. Wow. Now, obviously, the way that you guys are diversifying or dividing and conquering, you know, uh, Matt, he is the CTO, uh, really, you know, making sure that engineering and everything, you know, with his team, you know, is under control. And then, you know, Ty, the CEO. And I guess as the CEO, you know, someone that uh, is leading the fundraising efforts, you know, I would assume, obviously with the rest of the team, but but taking on that responsibility. I guess to that uh, point, how much capital have you guys raised today, uh, Ty? Yeah, we've raised, uh, we've been, you know, venture funded. We've raised just under $200 million of capital life today. Uh, we have about half of that left, right? So I, I, we, we were not, we, we very much pride ourselves on being an efficient company, and uh, but for for what we do, we have to actually raise capital not only to fuel the initial burn of you know any of most startups, but also we have to have capital that we put on a on a balance sheet because part of what we do is actually take some insurance risk via some some regulated entities, and so you know it's kind of it's a complex it's a more complex story than your average kind of software company in terms of capital. And now, you know, for, for Matt too, you know, when it comes to the, to the, to the team, you know, I guess, how big is the team today? Yeah, my, my, my team in engineering is about 65 people. The, the company is just under 300. Just under 300. Okay, got it. And, and in that regard, you know, I guess uh, 
a question, you know, that I that I like to ask Ty and 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 Matt, you know, I, I'd like for you to really expand on is if you guys were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of openly is fully realized, what does that world look like? Ty, let's start with you. Ah, well, my whole theory about insurance is that today it's very opaque. It's very hard for consumers to actually understand what pricing is out there and therefore to save money, to get the best coverage for them. It's a complex web they have to, to dance through. I think a hundred years from now, it's hard to imagine that the market won't have changed. I think you'll see, in, I, I referenced earlier that like 40% of the money goes toward administrative expense. That number's got to come way down. It's like if Imagine if 40% of your 401k contributions went toward the, you know, the management fee or something. It's almost like that. So that's got to happen. And I think what will fuel that is consumer, consumers driving that through their demand and through increasingly transparent digital choice for consumers. And so what we would like openly to be, we, we kind of foresee that world coming. Um, and what we'd like to be is the fastest, best risk selecting, lowest expense uh, you know, insurance company and ultimately platform that is able to meet the needs of people who want to buy insurance um, in, a, in a more transparent way like that. So for example, imagine that Amazon is selling insurance uh, down the line through a digital agency, or imagine that you know uh, GM is, throw, is selling insurance through their OnStar in the, in the front of the car. These things are all retail outlets for insurance in the future. And we openly want to be there to sell insurance through all of these emerging retail outlets. And we want to do it low expense uh, without wasting people's time and with really advanced underwriting models. Um, so I want to be part of the what saves people about $100 billion per year in insurance. Well, that sounds like a lot to save. So Matt, uh, feel free to expand on that. Yeah, I think I have conversations with, with my friends all the time about insurance and they still, they just don't get it. And these are intelligent people. They, they care about their finances. They care about their, their, their family security and their, and their risk. But to them, it's just such a complicated product. And so on one hand, you know, the dream is to, to, to revolutionize, I guess, not even an evolution, to revolutionize insurance so that it's simpler. I don't know how, how possible that is, right? It's a highly regulated, very old industry. So short of that, what I would like to do is just to create an environment where it's easier for people to get help navigating the complexity of insurance. That means that making it easier for people to go to an insurance agent, whether that's a digital agent or, or a human agent that they meet and get answers to their, to their questions and really feel like their entire life is protected and, and they have the right coverage. I don't think we're there yet. I, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done to make insurance easier for even agents to navigate, let alone let agents make it easier for consumers to navigate. Now, one thing that I'd like to ask you guys, you know, here that uh, I'm sure people are, you know, probably even wondered is one thing that is that is amazing is that you guys started this as as already being good friends. And, um, you know, I find that in terms of co-founder dynamics, you know, communication is absolutely everything. You know, and I and I can see that, you know, on the way that, you know, we're having this discussion, how you both very well know, you know, who is accountable for what and who is responsible for what. So. How was that, you know, journey of or or in terms of dynamics with you guys to also because I'm sure that you very, you were very careful about the friendship too, 
like having those discussions where you were able to divide and conquer and, and, and how you guys, you know, agreed on why that should be the case, meaning why, you know, Ty taking on the CEO, why Matt taking the CTO and obviously each responsibility that it comes with each one of those. So Ty, feel free to jump in. Yeah, and it's it's a great question because I think in our cases we overlap maybe more than most co-founders do in our capabilities. I like I said I'm like an amateur coder, so I I kind of want to stick my nose in that stuff sometimes. And Matt is you know way broader than you know just like a technology person. He has amazing insight and thoughts about business and everything. You know he could he could be a CEO easily. So I think um, it was not an obvious uh, thing for us. I think um, in the we we did. We did talk about it in the early days. There were some, uh, clearly some fits and starts. I mean, you got two people and you're kind of grabbing everything as it comes, like kids chasing the soccer ball. We, we had some times like that. I think um, when we really first had to do it was when we hired our first employees besides us. We, we can't, it's like parents, when they have a kid, you got to like rationalize things. You can't, you know, present some um, chaotic world. And I think we both came from a corporate tradition that was clear about, you know, uh, roles and responsibilities. And we said, look, we got to get this straight. And so we did that. We also talked very methodically and, and intentionally about culture of the company. And we wrote down, all right, these are the values we want. And let's make sure we're hiring for these things, et cetera. I really am glad we did that. I, I think I see a lot of companies where the responsibilities aren't clear and where the culture is not clear. And I think that's a catastrophic error early that can, you know, it's maybe you can fix it when you have 10 people. But if you get to that point, you have 50 people, 100 people, you have a big problem. So, Matt, what would you what would you add to that? Yeah, definitely, it definitely didn't come kind of naturally to us. In fact, I remember this this time when uh, we, we were we were going through TechStars, and our mentor pulled us into uh, the office uh, to kind of have his his weekly two on one with us, and um, we thought we were in trouble because the, the tone was a little off. And he said, "You know, everything is going great." All the investors love meeting both of you. They really understand your idea. All the messaging is coming across, but we knew there was something that he was holding back. And, and he said, but the one thing that they keep telling us is they don't know which one of you is the CEO. And that's just, you know, because we were both so passionate about it and we were answering each other's questions and overlapping. And we thought that translated to a great dynamic, right? That we were both so energetic and, and involved. But instead what that translated into was a confusion. And so I can, from that moment on, we were very clear about like, this is technology and this is kind of the executive management side. I love it. So, so I guess, you know, obviously we've been talking about to the, um, the, the future, you know, the vision. I like to, to really talk about the past and being able to, to reflect on it. So if I had the opportunity of putting you guys into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time, you know, in time to maybe that moment where, you know, you guys, you know, had the, the idea of maybe starting a company. If you could have a chat with your younger self and be able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Let's start with Ty. Uh, one piece of advice. I think don't be intimidated by or or get too caught up in the hype of it, right? There's a whole like culture that is entrepreneurship and the VC funded startup world. And you can be very intimidated by it um, at first where you walk in and you, you know, while you've had success somewhere else, you walk in and you say, Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know how to behave according to these rules. And, you know, I, I think 
you know, but, but when you, and I think on the, the flip side is you can get into it and say, well, oh my gosh, these people want to give me money. I don't even have to create a great company. I just got to take money and they love me. But I think both of those are wrong and you need to go into it and just remain grounded and say, look, if I build a great company, it's not going to matter. I, we're, we're, it, you know, it, I will succeed if and only if that happens. And I think just make sure you stay grounded. And for me, that would have translated into probably a little bit more early confidence in those meetings um, where I brought more, I said, you know what, you, 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 you know insurance way better than these people. You don't need to be intimidated by this kind of VC sitting there, but it was, it was a new world for me. So it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't easy at first. And what about for you, Matt? Yeah, for me, I would say there's this fallacy that, that first-time entrepreneurs have. I have this amazing idea, and it's the idea that is the, the, the unique thing. And, and that, that's just wrong, right? It's your execution of the idea that's the unique thing. And, and so what they do is because they think that the idea is the special thing, they keep it secret. And they say, I'm not going to tell the world until it's ready. And what they need to be doing, what I wish I was doing more of, is telling everyone that will listen until they're bored out of their minds. Like, what my idea is, because worst case, you'll just get better at pitching Best case, you will find that random stranger that's either going to be a partner or an investor or a future employee. Um, so don't keep it a secret. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening that would like to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for, do, for doing so time? Yeah, look, our, uh, our, our website, openly.com, we have our you know, kind of contact stuff there. That's, we're kind of old school, so that's probably the best way to get in touch with the, the Openly crew, obviously on LinkedIn as well. But. Amazing. And the same thing for you, Matt. Are you also active on LinkedIn? Yep. LinkedIn is great. Amazing. Well, guys, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.